0: Well, if you have your Bibles in whatever form that is, I encourage you to open it up to the book of Titus. We're going to continue there. We started there last week. For those of you that may not have been there, just to give you a a really brief overview, Titus is on the island of Crete, small island. He and the Apostle Paul had been there together, planting house churches, and for whatever reason, Paul left and departed and went elsewhere. And he left Titus behind to kind of oversee the work that they had begun. And evidently, somehow, Titus communicated with Paul and explained a little bit of what might have been going on. And it wasn't all good. Matter of fact, evidently, there were a lot of problems in these house churches in Crete. And Paul, it appears, then responded with this letter. For whatever reason, we know he responded with this letter, and we've been looking at this letter, and we're going to continue this morning as we go through it. In verse 5 of chapter 1, Paul gives basically an assignment to Titus. And remember, Titus is one that has been mentored by Paul, possibly even may have led Titus to the Lord. And he tells them this in chapter uh, 1, verse 5, The reason that I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Kind of a twofold assignment that kind of runs into one another, the two aspects. One, there's some unfinished work and I need you to straighten it out and bring about a completion to that work. And two then you need to set in elders in every city. Every place there was a house church, set in leadership. And a lot of what we're talking about today is leadership as we look into the next few verses. In verses 6 through 9, we're going to be looking at Paul kind of gives Titus the qualification or lists the character traits or attributes of a leader, the kind of leader that will be necessary, one, to look different than those that are of the world, and two, the kind of leader that will demonstrate the character traits that lead to a behavior that is God-honoring. And then in verses 10 through 16, Paul concludes this first chapter that we've broken into chapters, this first chapter of the letter. He kind of concludes with it how to deal with false teachers. So we're going to look at this, and and I want to stress, as I mentioned last week, uh, I understand that here in these next few verses, Titus has been giving a, given instructions specifically for church leaders. And depending on what translations you have and what words are being used, sometimes they're called elders, sometimes they're called bishops, sometimes they're called pastors, basically all the same. But I don't want you to just look at this as a description of elders. It certainly is that. And it's what we look at it when we look at elders for the local church. But I believe there's much more meaning to it if you look at it this way and almost give yourself a self-examination of your own character, your own attributes as a leader. As I said last week, you're all leaders in some circumstance or in some environment, some capacity. You're leading somewhere. Maybe it's in the home. Maybe it's in the workplace. Maybe it's in civic organizations. Maybe it's in areas in, in in the church. But somewhere you are a leader, and you are operating in a leadership capacity. And if you say, gee, I think I missed all of those, you and I are all called and commissioned by God to make disciples. Amen? Go into all the world and make disciples. Well, if you're making disciples, if you're being obedient to that command, you're a leader you are mentoring and discipling someone, you are in that position of leadership. And remember, I from the Chip Ingram study we're doing, he uses this phrase, you need to remember, you are the greatest Christian that someone knows. Someone looks at you, and you are the greatest example of Christianity that they know. Because they don't know a whole lot of other people. And sometimes... The Christians that they do know may or may not actually be Christians, but the example that they're living doesn't reinforce what they're saying. And as we go through this, we discover that our character as Christians is extremely important because you and I are continually on display to an unbelieving world. We are displaying something, whether you think about it or not. And if you are a Christian who lets the world know that you're a Christian in any way, shape, or form, you are displaying in that, people, that person's mind or, or the unbelieving world what a Christian supposedly looks like. So you're displaying it. Matter of fact, we're going to see that Paul, in his way of looking at this, he reveals when he deals with false teachers that false teachers aren't only false teachers because of what they teach verbally, what they speak. You can be a false teacher by the way you live your life. We proclaim one thing and we live something totally different. If we are demonstrating in a false way what it means to be a Christian, we can be a false teacher just by our lifestyle. So I want to go ahead and read starting in verse 6 of chapter 1. Actually, I'll go ahead and review verse 5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished, And appoint elders in every town, just as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, since an overseer is entrusted with God's work. Some translations, instead of overseer, it says a steward is entrusted with God's work. He must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Wow. How's that for being a leader? Title of my message was, you know what, the character of a leader, and that's what he's really giving us here: is what kind of character should we exhibit as a leader? Now it would be nice if we just said, "Well, that's not for me; that's just for the elders." Um, I don't believe that for a second. I believe all the leaders, all Christian leaders, in whatever capacity we lead, should demonstrate these attributes. And it's hard to pick up on this when you just read the way it's translated into English if we could break down the Greek sentence structure, which I'm not even going to attempt to do, we would discover that the primary qualification that he's referring to is blameless. And then he goes on to explain or paint a picture for us of what blameless looks like. So the primary qualification, keep that in mind, is blameless, above reproach, it might say in your translation, unimpeachable. Now, listen, it does not mean perfect. It doesn't mean perfect. What it means that is a leader is of a good reputation and that they are, have a consistency of integrity. Not perfect. There are going to be charges brought against you. If you're in a leadership position, I guarantee there will be charges or accusations brought against you. But what it's saying here is if we live our lives according to these attributes and characteristics, we will be found not guilty when all the evidence has come together because there is an integrity there. Not perfect, make mistakes, mess things up occasionally, but blameless. So what we're looking at here is a blameless leader. What does it look like? Well, Paul's going to give us a very clear picture in the following verses of a lifestyle that should look different than the world's. Really different than the world's. The husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Now, ladies, before you think you don't have to pay attention, don't don't go there. There's lots of discussion about what that little phrase means in religious circles, denominational circles. Um, We could go into a whole bunch of things... But I think the primary message there is, and most theologians would agree with this part anyway, the primary message is there is a leader needs to be moral. Sometimes we get so focused on what we think the husband and one wife means, well, they they have to be married. Um, They can't be divorced. Gee, what if they were married and their wife died? Does that disqualify? We can argue about all these things and we can disagree and argue about those to the point that we forget the main point is a leader that is blameless is a moral, moral leader. Leaders in the home. The father of believing children. Same thing happens with this. We look at this and say, but they can't be a leader. How many of your kids are perfect? (laughs) Just mine, huh? You know we don't raise perfect children. How many of us, rhetorical question, don't raise your hand. How many of us have children that aren't probably following the Lord? It happens. Does that disqualify you as a leader? It depends on how you interpret this verse. But I believe what's being clearly taught that can be debated in all these other areas, and we lose the main point, this needs to be a father that is engaged in intentional discipleship of his children. A father who's engaged, a father who is involved, and he leads by example. The way he lives his life and as a spiritual leader in the home. This kind of father who works and trains his children, corrects his children, encourages his children, rebukes his children, disciplines his children. A father who is actively involved in discipling, pastoring, shepherding his children. In verse 7, the very first part of that verse, are the verses still up there? Good. Since a steward, this is the reason it's so important. We are stewarding things. Whatever it is you're leading, it's not really yours. Whatever it is. Christians, we say this, but we forget it. Everything belongs to God, right? That means whatever I am a leader in, I am stewarding something that belongs to God. If it's my family, they are a gift to me from God. They belong to him. My wife belongs to him. She's his daughter. My children belong to him. He's just giving them to me for a season to steward them. Whether you're a leader in the business place or in a civic organization, I don't care what it is, it's not yours. We're to steward it. God has placed it in positions, us in positions of leadership. And it's interesting in Scripture, when we look at that Scripture that says all leadership, all all put in place by God, we just think of the president or something. No, he says all leaders. All who are places of governing are put there by him. So we need to look at this and realize we're stewarding something. And The definition of that word steward means you're managing something for the one who owns it. That's what we're doing. So Paul is laying out, get church leaders, and I'm trying to expand it to leaders in general, that we are stewarding what belongs to the Lord. We need to live a blameless life as Paul is laying it out for us. And then he goes on, and I'm going to go through these quite quickly. Some of them are very self-explanatory. Some of them maybe need to be expounded on a little bit. But I think the next five that he lists... Are examples that show an emotional maturity. Leaders should be in possession of a level of emotional maturity. That's one of the reasons that, you know, you don't, in terms of church government, we don't set in somebody suddenly. In other words, we don't set in somebody, we're not looking at, at the chronological age. That's not what's important. We look at them in terms of their spiritual life, their Christianity. There's soundness of doctrine, Bible knowledge, things like that. So he's saying here, these things, I believe, show emotional security. One, they're not overbearing. Not overbearing. Anybody ever worked for an overbearing leader? That word overbearing could mean arrogant, an arrogant leader, a leader who does not pay a single bit of attention, totally disregards anybody else's opinions or interests, They assert their own will pretty much no matter what. Overbearing leadership. He uses this, not overbearing. He goes on and says, not quick-tempered. Having the ability to control your temper. Not easily allowing your buttons to be pushed beyond what you can maintain, your emotional state. Not a short fuse. Not easily provoked. It's not a compliment when someone says, boy, You have a short fuse. And we say that's because you lit it. (laughs) Paul doesn't care who's trying to light it. Not given to drunkenness. Now before you say, I don't drink, I'm okay on this one. Well, (laughs) there are a lot of other things that control our lives besides alcohol these days. Alcohol is obviously a primary one, but there's all the other drugs. I believe what he's saying here is, you know what? We can't be controlled by any habit, any substance, any behavior, or any addiction that controls our mind. Now think about that for a second. Think of the things that control our mind, habits, addictions, alcohol, drugs, pornography, gambling. And you could go on and on. I believe he is saying, if we are to be a blameless leader, showing a track record of integrity, we cannot have those habits that control us. And in our culture, a lot of those habits aren't even thought of as being bad. They're accepted. Gambling, golly. We can look at all the different levels of gambling, right? Anybody fill out a box on a Viking board for a game? I'm not, I'm not trying to criticize. I'm just, just, I'm just trying to show how it permeates our culture. That it's all okay. Pornography is everywhere. It's everywhere. It's on our television commercials, for goodness sakes. I used to... Laugh at my parents when they used to say, Boy, things have changed. Now I know my kids and the rest of you younger people laugh at me when I say, Boy, things have changed. Pornography controls us, controls our minds. Gambling, if you're hooked, oh my goodness. All of these things. He's saying, Not given to drunkenness. Expand that as you evaluate. Where are you at? Not violent. A person who doesn't lead to a coercion. Do you have to coerce everybody to get things accomplished? Now, literally, it means you know, basically to punch in the face. So I hope that's not where we're at. Sometimes it's, it's translated a pugnacious. Don't be pugnacious. Don't be one who's violent and physically abuses people. But don't lead through coercion. Do not be an argumentative leader. Some of you that know me well are wondering, okay, Mike, how did you do in the self evaluation I haven't hit anybody (laughs) yet. (laughs) Seriously, when we coerce people, we manipulate people. We're argumentative. We've got to have it our way. Paul is saying, Titus, don't, don't, don't put those guys in leadership. That is not a character trait of a godly person. And then the last one in this group, the way I group them, is not pursuing dishonest gain or not being greedy. Now, we always think of money, and it certainly means that. But anything for self-gain. I'm greedy for recognition. I'm greedy for the you know whatever it is. Why do we do what we do? Why do we lead where we lead? Do we, are we greedy just for attention? Are we greedy for approval? In the ministry, just think of the people that we would look at, and it seems like all they want is my money for whatever reason, greediness, dishonest gain. But he's saying we want people, leaders, that are content in their circumstances. Are we content in our circumstance? Then he goes on, and I've I've changed the category a little bit. You won't even notice it as you read it in the scripture. But it looks like here there's two qualifications that really demonstrate a ministry mindset. These leaders should have a ministry mindset. They should be hospitable, hospitality. They would have an outward look, an outward approach. They would be people who care about the strangers. They would be people that not only care about the strangers, they'll do whatever they can to help them when there's a need. Hospitable, a hospitable character. And then it says, one who loves what is good. And it seems like when I look at this in the context of all that Paul's saying in this first chapter, love is what in good because what he stresses so much I talked about last week is good works, good deeds. And we made clear last week and I'll reiterate it here in just a few minutes but we are saved by grace through faith, not by works. So these good works have nothing to do with our salvation. They have a lot to do with displaying the inner work that God has done through his son Jesus in redeeming us and the Holy Spirit then working in our lives and us responding. He's concerned with the inner working that manifests outwardly. Love what is good. We are a product of our thought life. We are a product of our thought life. There's a great scripture in Philippians 4, 8 and 9. And if you have trouble controlling your thoughts taking every thought captive. Really, make a note of these these scriptures. Read them. It says, Finally, my brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. This is what Paul is saying when he wrote the letter to the Philippians. Is Our lifestyle being displayed in such a way that we would ever be able to say, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me, do that. We should be able to. And then I think he goes on, and I I list the next four as uh, traits, that reveal our personal integrity. He says, be self-controlled. One who, is, who can control their emotions so we're not just driven by our emotions or our passions. Be upright. One who is fair, who is committed to doing the right thing no matter what the cost is. Even when people aren't watching. Upright. Do the right thing. holy. Well, we know, depending on how you define it, none of us are holy except through the blood of Jesus. But what it means here, I believe, is to be devoted to a godly purpose, godly direction in our life. You know what? We care a lot more about what God thinks than what the world thinks. Living a life that demonstrates God's opinion is the one that matters, not the world's. And Disciplined. Mastering your own life. And really, frankly, I believe it's totally true that the only way that can happen is to be surrendered to the Holy Spirit in us. If we're looking at this all as some way of outwardly expressing it, all you're going to do is try to fool the world, try to fool yourself, and you're going to wear out and fail. It needs to be and can only be, I believe, because of an inward work that starts with being redeemed and transformed by the the blood of Jesus Christ, And then the working of the Holy Spirit in us. Inward change, manifesting outwardly in our character. And then he goes on and says these words in verse 9. Hold fast or hold firm to a trustworthy message. message. Again, I believe this is for all of us, not just leaders in a church. He says, you need to know the Bible. It is the only trustworthy message. It's true every day, everywhere on planet Earth or beyond, in every situation. Hold true to that trustworthy message. Be committed to truth. Then he says, able to teach. And then he goes on and says, able to rebuke those who oppose the truth. And what he is referring to, I believe, is rebuking them with the word of God. Rebuking them with truth. And as lovingly as we can. We can become very good at rebuking people, but it's basically based on our opinions. So often. And it doesn't work very very good. So as we get to the end of that list, rather than just giving Titus the list of all these external behaviors... He's given them a list of qualifications that would demonstrate the kind of lifestyle that a leader, a Christian leader, should demonstrate to the world around us. And it will lead to behavior that brings glory and honor to God. And that's what he's talking about specifically so much with these people at at Crete because one of the big problems was their words and their actions were not lining up at all. They were proclaiming to be this and they were living like this. And he goes on and starts to talk about false teachers. Starting in verse 10, it says this, For there are many rebellious people. Notice the word for there. Following verse 9, connecting that, ability to know the word, teach, rebuke. And he says for because, here's the reason why it's so important that you know these things. There are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group, the Jewish people. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things that ought not to be taught, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, br- evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. Now, I said that last week, and I said that's what they were. Now, you we need to remember, he's speaking in a generality here, right? Not every single human being on the island of Crete would be that. That's like somebody watching TV in a foreign country, and all they see is our news. Our news. And he says, what do you think of Americans? Man, they are an evil, violent people that don't get along with each other. All they want to do is destroy stuff. Well, we know that's not everybody. But that is the culture that he was dealing with at Crete. And then in verse 13, it says, This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in their faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Don't you wish Paul would quit beating around the bush. False teachers in the house of God, in the church. He gives three characteristics of them right away. He says they're rebellious. They will not su- submit to the teaching of the apostles. They're mere talkers or empty talkers. Meaning not what that they say doesn't maybe make sense. They're not living it. Their words have no meaning because their actions are undermining them completely. And deceivers. Who deceive others, try to deceive others and who themselves are deceived. Take just a brief tangent here. How do you identify false teachers? Um, There are many things you need to look at, but three of the foundational ones are this. Who do they say Jesus is? Who do they say Jesus is? Is he fully God and fully man, or isn't he? There are many, many different people out there espousing something different than that. Sometimes it's just slightly different than that. You need to be discerning. You know, there are enough good teachers out there. When I say out there, I mean TV, books, YouTube videos, wherever it is you're going to receive teaching. There are enough good ones out there that if you see these red flags, why play with them? Just because what over here they said was really good when you know over here, boy, it's marginal at best or heresy at worst. Who is Jesus? John 1 through 3 and verse 14 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The Word is God. And then in verse 14 it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word. Jesus is God. Fully God, fully man. He didn't lay aside His divinity on earth ever. He was always fully God and fully man. Anybody who teaches otherwise would be qualified, in my mind, as a false teacher. Second area, how do we experience a right relationship with God? In other words, how do we get saved? It is salvation through faith, by grace. Salvation by grace, through faith, with nothing added to it. Ephesians 4 4 through 10 it's up there, I believe. I'm not going to read it all, but when you go through it, you'll see in verse 5, it is by grace you have been saved. Verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Jesus Christ to do good works, which he prepared from the foundations. There, Anybody who teaches or adds anything to that, is actually subtracting from the truth of what Jesus Christ accomplished. It is not by grace through faith plus anything. If they add anything. And here the Jewish people, the circumcision they were trying to add, you got to be circumcised, you need to follow some of the holy days, you can't eat this food, you can't eat that food. False teachers. And the third one would be, what is the authority for truth? What's your authority for truth? Well, my truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. As long as you don't hurt me, your truth is fine. That is garbage. That is philosophical heresy. The word of God is the only authoritative standard of truth. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Notice how often good works shows up. Always, after, salvation, by grace, through faith. And in John 17, 17, Sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. How are we supposed to respond to these false teachers? Paul's pretty firm. Silence them. Verse 11. Verse 13. Rebuke or reprove them sharply. But before you just focus on getting in their face, we need to understand he also talks about so that they would have sound doctrine. He is wanting to take an even rebuke, approach them directly, frontly, confront them sharply, but with truth so that they may receive the truth and have a solid foundation, a solid faith. There is a redemptive quality in rebuking when it's done correctly. And Paul is saying, rebuke them sharply. You know, this, this false teaching is like a cancer. It spreads. It needs to be dealt with quickly. So many of us don't like confrontation. If we're standing on truth and we can use the word of God, we need to be bold and loving and show them what the truth really is with the hope that they would receive the truth and their relationship with the Lord would be reestablished. He finishes... This is a pet peeve of mine, so I'm going to go back to it. (laughs) Indulge me for a moment. It's like a cancer, you need to cut it out because it spreads. This is my concern. There is a, are amazing people teaching and preaching on the TV. There are amazing teachers on YouTube videos. There are amazing books being written by amazing men and women who are teaching the Word of God. But there's a whole lot of crap out there, garbage out there. <laughs> the Nakams boy' still here. <laughs> they used to rebuke me when those words would come out. There's so much junk out there, and everybody, so often I get here, Pastor, read this book. Or, what do you think of this guy? I don't know anything about that guy. I said, what did you check him out on, on, on the internet? Did you check out and see what they've written? What have they said? What have they truly believed? Do you know this guy? I really like his teaching. Well, why do you like it? Oh, he's so down to earth. He's so folksy. I just love his teaching. I don't care what his style is. Does he teach truth? And there's no, I can't and no elder can know all these people. And like I said, there's many good ones out there. But we, as individuals, need to be discerning. And we need to take responsibility and do our homework and research it. Us elders are called to protect the flock from false teachers. It's gotten so much harder because of all the sources that are now out there. Okay, I'm done with that. I hope you're concerned too. And then he finishes with the defiled. They live wicked lives. They have evil minds, corrupted minds. Their moral conscience is defiled. They profess to know God, but their deeds make them liars. They trust in their own works, wisdom, and in their own righteousness. That last verse. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. I want to soften that and make sure we look at it in the context of who is being talked about here. Who is being talked about? Who is he referring to? He's talking to those false teachers that refuse to be corrected. They refuse any godly rebuke. They refuse all of that. They are totally defiled. Their conscience has become seared. Those are the ones whose actions are denying that they know God that he calls detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. Every one of us here, and the reason I want to soften that and make sure we look at it as context, every one of us here, including me and everybody, we blow it in our actions. If someone would only get one little snapshot of Mike and it was at a really bad moment in Mike's life, they could describe me as defiled and detestable and yuck. We all mess up. This isn't referring to all of us who have a few bad moments. It's referring specifically. And having said that and softened it, our lifestyle is supposed to demonstrate what a believer in Christ really looks like. Next week, he goes on in the next chapter. We're going to stop there. Next chapter, he gets even more specific. He says, What's this look like in real life situations? And he gives examples of real-life situations of what being this godly example might look like. So let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, be our teacher in all this information as we're looking at this, Lord. I pray you would help each one of us. Give us the grace to truly examine ourselves, that we might see ourselves in the light of your word. Father, then give us the grace to respond to whatever area of our life you want to change, that you want to tweak, that you want to work on. Father, give us the grace to humble ourselves before you and respond to your Holy Spirit, convicting us, encouraging us, rebuking us with your truth. Father, I thank you for godly leadership in every realm. God, we pray for our leaders in every realm, at every level in our localities, our churches, our schools, the businesses, and our government at the state, local, and national level. God, we pray for godly men and women to be put in positions of authority and give them the grace to govern as you would want them to. But I pray, Lord, you will help each one of us in the leadership capacities you have given us to be the kind of leader that Paul refers to is one who is above reproach. Father, we pray that we would respond like this to bring you glory and honor. Pray now, Lord, that as we go our separate ways, you would watch over us. God, give us real discernment for those opportunities you bring across our path every day to share the good news of the gospel with others. Protect us and keep us safe.